Welcome y bienvenidos to the Estás en el Puro Wyoming podcast, the EPW podcast. This is the podcast talking about all things Latina, Latino with an education, culture, politics, and more. We started this podcast to provide voice to what's really going down root level, grassroots level in Latino education, uh, culture, and politics. And really, these were just the conversations that me and the Cardinalis have been having for years. And we just thought, why not take it to the airwaves? Because we think that you all are having similar conversations. Uh, today, as always, we got the Cardinalis. We got Andrew Benitez coming to us from Harvard Square. What up, baby? What up? With my sway voice on. What up, world? Uh, how y'all doing? Happy to join you all from this uh, super duper rainy and cold Cambridge day. I got a piece of news for you all. I'm getting ready for the fall, getting ready for the winter. I'm finally putting away my chanclas and I actually bought some boots. Oh, oh man, some boots for the winter. Oh, yeah, man. man. Oh. Let me tell you what kind. You want to oh, know what follow, kind? Follow your boy on Pinterest. <laughs> then we follow your boy on Pinterest. I <laughs> you got them boots aroused, man. Go check out. Go check out my Tim's. Uh, just kidding. I did not buy Timberlands. I bought some Uggs. Oh, I got some Uggs. Look at these, man. They're going like Ugh. <laughs> But I'll tell you this, they are incredibly warm. The label oh says it's water, waterproof. We'll see when I take them out for a spin. I'm getting ready, man. I'm going to be ready. What the fuck is the light bill? You bought some Uggs. <laughs> Where are the mugs, man? This is fucking news. Like, I want to see these motherfuckers. Where they at? Where they at though? Oh, I don't have a you know, They still have the box. I haven't used them yet. Ah. But you know, they're really soft, and you know, wow. they, they're better than sneakers for the rain. Oh man, that's that Cambridge ass shit, man. <laughs> man, already upgrading. Already, already upgrading. Yeah, yeah man. It's a uh, seventy-six degree day here in Paso, Texas. <laughs> okay, well, uh, fuck me then. Oh, you! Oh, fuck you! And as always, man, coming to us from Denver, from D-town, Colorado, we got Antonio Villal, the poet, the master, the lyrical <laughs> lyricist. What up, V? Hey, Kewale. What's going on, everyone? Uh, broadcasting. Uh, from the subterranean uh, alcove here in D-Town. It is 19 degrees here with snow. <laughs> uh, praying collectively for a, a snow day tomorrow. You tripping. Are you for real? I'm for real, man. We've got Holy snow in the shit. forecast for the next three days, man. We're either going to have a delayed start, delayed oh start or gosh. possible snow day. Dang. Yo. Yeah, Yo, man. Omar, weren't you just in Denver like last we week? I was. Yeah, it was balmy and sunny. Like yeah. Babar and I went running across Northfield and it was beautiful. And he like slid on a slide and it was magical. And now not so much. Yeah. <laughs> this is what this is what happens when Babar leaves the city. You yeah. Get, yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. This A children's happened. book coming to you soon. <laughs> oh my God, dude, we should write it. <laughs> that would be Babar. amazing. Babar's travels. <laughs> About the sunshine. And and impact on the ecosystem. <laughs> oh man, that's such a cool book. Babar. 
about like the Latino culture and all these cities that right. he's visited and lived in. <laughs> Root cause or correlation? Global warming. Oh, no. <laughs> all we know is Babar's pissed. <laughs> For those yeah. of y'all that may not know, Babar is uh, the very beautiful fun and adorable 23 pound miniature schnauzer who uh, everybody knows he visits the school a great deal he's kind of the informal mascot once i get this website up i'll put a picture up of the bar because the, the man deserves to be recognized you better recognize that ass Hell yeah so what happened this week y'all what do we what what happened in y'all's worlds this week it's been a while since we've caught up it's been a while, man. Uh, here in D-Town, um, at our school, we had parent-teacher conferences uh, two nights in a row. Um, so teachers were there roughly clocking hours from about 3.30 until about 7.30 in some Oops. cases. Better buy that um, some pizza. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Pizza and Panera, that's what we had this week. Um, mm. But yeah, long nights with our families. But once again, I just want to say, like, this dispels the notion that Oftentimes people say that our parents don't care about education, um, despite the cold, despite the snow, many of our parents, if not all of them came out and actually visited with um, their teachers to learn about the progress their scholars are making. So um, really favorable, um, good week, long week, right back after fall break. And so we're back at it again this upcoming week um, with possibly a delayed start or snow day. Of course, that's the collective prayer to the snow gods right now. Yeah, man, get that Monday off. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Especially after what sounds like a long-ass week, man. Damn. Long-ass week, for sure. Damn. And how were the parents, man? Were they, were they dope? Any parent, like... Uh, parents know, are good. You know how this goes. Like, parents show up, and they're excited. They're anticipating the best. And oftentimes, they will hear stories about growth. And oftentimes, they'll hear stories that warrant the chancla um, yeah. about... Uh, they didn't know that their child was supposed to be doing something or that they've been off task in class or whatever. But the fact is, is that we make sure that all families walk away knowing that we celebrated and acknowledged one area of growth um, academically for every scholar. So uh, that's what's up. Yeah. All we right, to, man. You know, have a good experience and let them know that we're in this together. Lincoln Arms. That's what's yeah. up. I'm glad to hear it, man. AB, yep, yep. what's going on in your neck of the woods, man? Uggs, man, just straight Uggs everywhere. Video dancing in the video. I got singing I got in the Uggs, video. But I come to the West you know, Coast. I'll buy I got the Uggs. fall discount. I got the fall special. My Uggs came with a pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> You know, oh. what can I say? You boys live in yourself. Good. Get yourself a yourself, motherfucker, or die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, man, I got my Uggs. Uh, I've, uh, I'm uh, one week past uh, midterm season. So really happy to be beyond that. Um, well, yeah, are but, you back in classes? Are we back in classes? Yeah, are you back in class? Uh, yeah, yeah. There wasn't a midterm break? Oh no! Oh shit! Oh no no no! They, okay. Yeah, they, yeah. We we had classes. Oh, really? at, Back that ass for real. Yeah, we had classes during the week, and uh, just all the papers do pretty much on the same day. Um, but no, I think everything went well. Uh, learning a lot. I think that like um, of note, uh, one of my advisors or my advisor in the program introduced me to um, a young man who's at the college. He's a freshman, and he's a first gen uh, from Houston. Um, he's killing it, uh, taking, uh, 
Chinese classes. He's a, a finalist for a program that will take him to Mexico to work with the, the Electoral Commission in, in Mexico. Damn. And for him, uh, the son of, uh, of undocumented immigrants, this would be his first time ever um, going to, to Mexico. So um, just incredible experience sitting down. And uh, for all of us, you know, practitioners doing the program, we're taking, you know, sort of a three-year step away from the work. Um, but in sitting down and, and meeting young people like this, I mean, it gets to remind me, like, I mean, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And also, like, hearing from you all, Omar and V, what's going on back in El Paso and in Denver reminds us, like, this is real work and it's still happening and appreciate you all. That's what's up. That's what's up, man. Indeed. Um, yeah, so I took a I took a nice break from the work this weekend. Uh, Friday, man, I actually went to one of them escape rooms. Y'all ever been in one of those? Charlie, man. Brother, ain't it enough hey, living in this country? Come on, man. I'm a pay you. You already put me in mental chains. No exit. Come on, man. Come on now. This is existential in nature. I pay you to lock me up. I'm no escape. I'm about to pay to get locked up. <laughs> no, it's not. And this was like the no. version. So you had like a bunch of clown looking motherfuckers. <laughs> Oh my god. I was like, oye, pinche botones. Oh, cinturazos. Oh, pinche cinturazos a botones. Oh, pinche botones, perdón, que te di. Cinturazos en la cara, cabrón. Yeah, dude, it was nuts, man. Um, actually, dude, I, I found it to be a lot of fun. Um, it was like a Halloween version, so it was like very macabre, and there was like, you know, like letters on the wall written like in blood and shit like that you know red paint whatever um and people like trying to like spook you and shit but it was like exhilarating man i love solving puzzles it was badass um and the the grouper we were with was funny dude. they're like oh, gavels, man, what am I it was like we got a puzzle and we can't we ain't got time for this shit let's go <laughs> that would have been me by the way yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been me i'd have just been kicking yeah. doors open so that was Friday night. And then last night uh, was fucking nuts. So I, I, I have a very, very interesting dichotomy in my background. Um, a lot of their listeners don't know this, AB and, and, and V know it to a certain extent. But, you know, despite the fact that, you know, I grew up in, you know, relatively like, comfortable like lower middle middle class status here in El Paso like there was never any want or need or anything uh part of my family my cousins in Juarez are like bananas affluent so my cousin Yamelita threw a birthday party yesterday at my um my aunt's house in Juarez 
And I remember, you know, inviting someone and they were like, Oh, what is what? And like very scared. And I was like, no, you don't get it, man. Like this is, this is another side. Uh, you could tell the other side when you were walking through the door and there were like three cats with like MR 15s as guards. Just guard, yeah, for guard. the fiesta. For the fiesta. And I was like, wow, yeah, nothing quite says we're about to celebrate like a bunch of guys, yeah. heavy fucking artillery at the door. Just literally being like, Está tu nombre en la lista o qué cabrón? <laughs> like, oh, qué pedo, qué pedo. ¿Qué es tu nombre? Oh, oh, oh botoncito. Me llamo botoncitos. Te tenemos que matar. No hay ningún botoncito. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, Yanar y Grega. They're like, oh, sí. Pásale, señor Yanar. Estamos um, esperando. Yeah. And I was like, what the shit is this? <laughs> it was it was so hard to describe. I should put up videos on the website. Basically, my my cousin Yamel um, flew in. I'm not lying. Had to fly in like 25 people who are part of this like very elaborate kind of Mexican cover band slash entertainment ensemble. She had to fly them all in from Mexico city, not to mention, not just them, but like their entire production team. So in this massive backyard, like that's basically the size of like, I don't know, man, like six tennis courts kind of combined into one. Damn. Yeah, it's huge. It was like a big ass stage with like a light show and fucking fog everywhere and shit. And like, you know, the production of like um, basically like screens in the background that are showing animation. And then these like fucking 20 fucking cats just <laughs> jump on stage. <laughs> shit, dude. And they're like, Willa, Willa. <laughs> it's like doing fucking like interpretive dance like Magneto, which I'm like, I don't I don't think Magneto in the song with Hawella Warren's fucking interpretive dance. But they were going for it, dude. My favorite was they did a whole set in the middle that was like in English and they were mostly 80s songs. So they started busting into like a rhythm, and I was like, Oh, I recognize this rhythm. I'm like a huge 80s affectionado and I'm like oh this is Toto's Africa and then these two dudes jump out pinchy skunky nudia la chingada dude with only like <laughs> on, and there's fucking like just, oh, yeah. just practically naked except for the hula skirt well they missed the rain down in Africa man come on fuck <laughs> man I think they missed the memo down in like <laughs> in the Sahara put some pants on Samoan dancing Show some respect <laughs> it's the fucking memo they were Samoan dancing and I'm like Samoa's not in Africa <laughs> tell these fucking dudes they're like not only oh, culture, no. but by a whole fucking continent and ocean. Oh, <laughs> but they didn't give a fuck. They were dancing. They don't. The off they like don't. the rock. <laughs> like oh, they meant Lord. it, man. And I'll that tell you amazing. one thing. Man. It's going to take a life to drag me away, not from you, but from the mental image of those two people acculturating <laughs> a wrong dance to a wrong. Dance. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it was, oh, did they give you a DVD at the end? Oh, dude, I fucking wish, dude. I took some video. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't hand you the DVD at the end, fool. Yeah. Holy shit, man. And then like the like the the muchachas, dude, they were skunky nudie también. And like literally someone's like, oh, es como sábado gigante. Oh, nadie tiene ropa y todos están bailando por nun, ningún razón particular. <laughs> I was like, okay. man, the color commentary was amazing, but they were like, it, I mean, it was fucking nuts, man. Was, this is amazing. I gotta tell you, I thought I saw something crazy on your sister Soraya's Instagram. Yeah. So I'm checking it again and I'm oh. seeing right now what you are talking about. <laughs> There's a visual show, like huge screens behind them. That's they're all up on the stage dancing. This is the video. This is amazing. Dancing in the video. And like to give context to the listeners, there's like at one point there was literally like 15 to 20 people on stage. And it, like you had the band who sadly did not receive any respite or reprieve. They were just playing for like a fucking hour straight. The sets. <laughs> Not, these cats didn't get to take like a break or a smoke break. I mean, just fucking an hour straight. And then these singers would kind of um, would come on stage, come off stage. So depending on the song and depending on the voice, some guy would sing and it would sound like Luis Miguel. Another cat would come in and sing and sing Magneto. Um, someone like some of the women came up and sang like Julia Venegas songs. And then there was like Soda Stereo and then Madonna. So there was all this kind of like interlaced choreography between the singers that were coming on stage, the singers coming off stage, but then the backup dancers and had like several wardrobe change, mostly consisting of jackets um, so that they could like sing to ABBA and like sequence jackets and do 70s moves and shit with half naked men um, doing very odd interpretive dance behind them. I mean, this is all at a birthday party. And it, it literally I was just like, holy fuck, man, like this is this is yeah. happening in someone's backyard. It was that's, that's crazy. Did, did you escape? <laughs> I, I found that the key to escape was a lot of highballs, just a lot of highballs. Of which, like, the I, found, best, I found my own way to escape. Yeah. Dude, the best part was, dude, like we were we were sitting there and our, our waiter, like highball is like a known entity. For our listeners, a highball is a very simple cocktail. It's just scotch and soda. That's it. That's it. Some ice. It's not a very difficult cocktail. And we asked our waiter, like, because there was like meseros por todos lados, dude. And they were like, oh, que quieres? And I was like, oh, un highball. Uh, un que? And I was like, <laughs> highball. Un que? And I was like, sir, I'm not asking for an eight ball. It is a drink. It is made of scotch and soda. That is it. Oh. And it like literally took him an hour to comprehend something simple. And then yes, scotch. No, that's exactly right. He kept Bucanas, Bucanas, hombre. literally what he brought. <laughs> like chapa ass bucanans. I was like, bucanans. This isn't like, is scotch. It's like chapas or Johnny Walker. It doesn't need to be like highfalutin scotch, but like bucanans is literally like sewer dumpster waste and certainly not scotch. And he's like, oh, bucanans. It's like, oh, bucanas. Oh, yeah. no, me estás encabronando, cabrón. 
<laughs> oh my goodness. So we had to switch waiters. Uh, and then it was like the never ending flurry of high balls. Cause they truly understood what it was. It was, it was nuts, man. It was, it's uh, certainly interesting to see how the other half live. Uh, and to have a small taste of it, uh, including half naked dancers was a very surprising way to spend a Saturday night. I'm not even mad. I'm not, yeah, I'm not even mad, man. So uh, we are now back from Mars, back from the land of highballs and midterms. And well, I mean, sorry, B, you, you, you're still in the land of 17 degree weather and snow. Shoot. Oh, man. Yeah, man. Oh, man, you need to live that ug life now, brother. Ugh <laughs> <laughs> life. So I know we got a really, a really interesting topic today. So um, I want to let the Cardinales kind of set the table and set the, the platform for what it is that we're going to discuss today. So I know V's going to chime in and then Andrew's going to provide a little sub context here. So V brother, man, what are we ranting, ranting about today, man? Yeah. So what we're talking about today is the notion of identity matters, talking about race and racism, um, especially how it affects and impacts the way in which our young people, brown and black youth um, identify and exist within really structurally racist environments. Um, but I want to take us to a moment which I feel is really productive and instructional. Um, there was a forum that took place back in October 8th, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was actually sponsored by Sesame Street. It was a forum in New York City. No um, shit. Yeah. Brought to you by the letter R for racism. Eso. Calle <laughs> Sesamo. <laughs> and uh, so... Essentially, what happens is, is that there's this micro moment within the event and the whole event was to really educate the public on the way in which racial, gender and other personal factors can fuel kids biases as well as their prejudice um, and how they experience themselves. So it was really around identity. And so on one side of the conversation, you had, you know, essentially the Chancellor Carranza and Carranza, for those of you who may not know him, is recently um, designated as the chancellor of New York, um, by Mayor de Blasio and was formerly with Houston as the superintendent there and formerly in the Bay area. Um, so he's done a lot of critical work, especially around, you know, instructional impact. Um, and then also looking at the way in which curriculum personnel, all the different components really drive learning and not just outcome-based learning, but learning in the sense of becoming more conscious, focusing on social agency. And so he was there as that voice mm. talking about his initiatives. Um, and one of his big initiatives, TS2 in particular, was just kind of, the first is around personnel, just kind of making sure that individuals who really align with and promote the status quo of that structurally racist um, environment can no longer exist and operate um, within um, you know, essentially the board of education. And so mm. has removed a number of people. I mean, it's extremely controversial. Yeah. Uh, he's really taken to task the sort of magnet schools as well. The screeners that are implemented and in place to routinely keep out um, scholars, brown and black scholars who make up, you know, 82% of 1.1 million scholars within the New York public school system. Um, so he's on one side of it and he's talking about, you know, his initiative about bringing culturally responsive sustaining education, which is a curricular overhaul so that scholars have a more positive sense of themselves and how they can exist and think critically um, with structures of power within the school system. Um, then at, 
a specific moment, there was another individual, um, Ian Rowe, who is um, the CEO and founder of Public Prep, um, essentially 2,000 students, um, K through 12 system um, located in the Bronx, Lower East Side in New York, founded in 2009. And ultimately, Ian Rowe pushes back on this notion that scholars and educational ecosystems really need and require culturally responsive education as a prerequisite for individual and collective success. And so you have on one side Karansa arguing the necessity to really overturn the rank and file of some of these like traditionally racist individuals who are within the system. He's also taking to task the curricular initiatives. And then ultimately Ian Rose states like, it's not about that particular cultural and racial identity that matters the most. And so what he says is that ultimately, um, these are Ian Rose's words, he says, so ultimately what we are trying to develop in kids who have a sense of personal agency, um, instead of saying who they are in terms of their racial outcome or their racial identity, he says that I would say, his scholars would say, I'm a boys prep scholar or I'm a girls prep scholar. And then he also goes on to say, we just did a spelling bee and one of our boys won the spelling bee. So his identity now is the spelling bee champion. One of our girls just competed in a chess competition and got to the finals. And she would say, I am a chess player. And so ultimately, the micro moment, the micro moment that we have here between the two of them is one side is arguing that it is absolutely necessary for us to really take to task the structural racism vis-a-vis a culturally sensitive and culturally responsive curriculum and also staff. Whereas on the other side, implicitly, what we can infer is that Roe is talking about this radical sense of individual agency and identity. Um, and so that's kind of the, the sort of productive space that I hope that we can pick up today, especially for black and brown youth um, coming up in these systems, not just in New York, but also throughout the country, like what the stakes are. And there's been a lot of conversation recently about the necessity um, for communities to see themselves as being self-determinants in their own process for liberation. Um, And so I think, you know, it's completely aligned with the work that we're thinking about and really want to put that on the table. Um, for us to discuss. Right. And then me, underpinning all of this. Oh, go ahead. Uh, let me just ask a, a quick question. And then yeah. I know AB may, may add a little bit of context, but just so I can wrap my head around this a little bit. Yep. It sounds like what Ian is saying is that identity should be fluid and should be dynamic. And it should be based upon a self-determination of perhaps like accomplishments. Yes. Like, yo, like you don't have to be what um, anything prescribed you to be. We need to get our scholars to think about what they could be and want to be. And it could be dangerous to pigeonhole them with a specific identity, uh, whether that be through race or religion or anything else, and to do so could be detrimental. Whereas like Carranza is really saying, and get me, don't let me see if I get this right. So um, what I believe he's saying, let me say that, because I'm not too sure exactly what he's postulating is, you know, Identity plays such a big part in the development of the self-esteem and understanding of our scholars, particularly Latino scholars. And if you don't have people who 
understand that identity because they come from a similar background, what you're doing is having like a major disservice because you're having this like very weird, almost like, um, like lost in translation moment, right? Where like you have a Latino kid receiving instruction from someone who's not Latino and the lack of cultural understanding may be a detriment to the kid. Is that really kind of the context of this of this debate? I think that's certainly a nuance that one can produce from the sort of opposing viewpoints. And I would say like, they're not explicitly opposing in nature. I just think that there probably is a lot of intersectionality, but this is just one of those micro moments that focuses on what you just stated. Um, Roe did also state that he critiqued the actual analysis talking about the negativity of stereotyping and abuses kids are subjected to rather than what measures are working. So he was more of exactly as you said, he wanted to focus more on what are the specific ways in which the deeds or accomplishments of scholars can identify and create that sort of positive self-image that has a direct link and correlation to not only having personal agency, but also doing well in school in terms of the education um, that they accomplish and receive. Right on, right on, man. So I know that um, AB is going to add a little bit of context to this uh, and then we can like kind of just jump into this. Yeah. This, is, this is some deep shit. Yeah, man. Yeah. So I've got some, uh, I've been reading an incredible um, a text in one of my classes and I'll say the name so that if any listeners want to check that out, it's from uh, Dr. Bettina Love at the University of Georgia. And the name of the book is We Want to Do More Than Survive. Uh, abolitionist teaching and the pursuit of educational freedom. So a lot of what we've discussed right now is um, is included in there. I've got a couple of, of quotes that I think are really powerful. I will say I want to hold off on that, though, um, because they get into not just about um, a bit of what we discussed right here, but also in terms of education reforms. Um, I'd really love to just jump into um, this micro moment and this sort of um, this dichotomy or perhaps like a false dichotomy between like identifying, having students identify based off of their actions, their achievements and their deeds, and also their, their REC, their, the racial, their racial and ethnic identity. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is it okay if I, if I jump in on this one? Yeah, man, please do. Cool with that. Hell yeah, yeah. man. Of course. I mean, like, this is a relevant discussion that I've, you know, we've been having in, in my experience, my graduate program, um, talking about, you know, our, our multiple identities. And I think that, you know, my identities that have been important to me growing up, if, I mean, especially growing up as a minority in Georgia and North Texas was like, I'm brown, man. Um, it was stark and very, very important. And so I see when I say like perhaps a false dichotomy, um, I see the value, at least in my own perspective, of having experienced um, what I perceive to be discrimination and racism in Georgia and in Texas, um, but also in being able to understand that I'm, I am, and I embrace my identity and the heritage of, of my family and um, and my history and my past. But I also um, have the ability to create my own identity. As at second grade, man, I was a spelling bee champ just like that example that was, and that mattered to me. And I held that as a badge of honor. You know Shit, what I mean? Like, spelling motherfucking master. I was a spelling MFer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I got it, man. Like, I won and 
I think that part of what was important for me is like, I, I did feel I was a minority kid, but I felt, you know, uh, affirmed by some of my teachers. But more than that, when I won that spelling bee, I just felt amazing. Um, so I, I hear, was it Ian? Is he the name of the... Um, yeah, Ian Rowe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hear what he's saying there. You know what I mean? Um, but I'm sure we can dig in a lot deeper. In in my case, um, I felt I felt able and more empowered um, to explore my own power um, by being a spelling bee champion, as well as a very proud Latino, Chicano, Mexican American. Um, what were your all's experiences? <laughs> Well, for me, I just think that, you know, like, I think it's very similar. Um, I knew and I felt that inherent racism within the schools that I attended growing up. And I also went to traditional Catholic school growing up. So there was a very clear dynamic between the brown and the white kids. Um, And so... I know that that completely contaminates it. I mean, we were supposed to just acquiesce to, you know, all of the lessons of reading and writing and math. It was total input output. So even from an educational perspective, there was nothing exploratory about it. There was nothing inquiry based. There was no critical consciousness. It was just all about memorizing. It was just all about learning the algorithms to solve problems it was very much a lockstep education that was um, supposedly designed to help us become part and part of part and parcel of like the dominant society and dominant culture. It was the full blown unfettered representation of that. Um, And so what I do think though, is like we did compete very much in the same way, like you talked about, everybody competed very much. So whether it was in the classroom or athletically, But it created this sort of like hidden system of meritocracy where we learned that early on. But what I also understood um, is that there were clear differences in the way in which value was adjudicated. Um, So, you know, I noticed very clearly like certain individuals were chosen for our athletic teams. Certain individuals were chosen for field trips. And the questions of, you know, why am I so like underperforming that I can't have access to these same things? And so I really didn't even have an opportunity to question those. I would tell my parents and of course my parents would be upset all the time. And then they'd, you know, ask me to try harder, to focus more, to pay attention. So all of that responsibility got placed back on me that there was something inherently wrong or underperforming about who I was. And my parents along with the systems, right? Of course, we're dealing now with like, we're dealing with the the Catholic system, we're dealing with a, you know, private school situation. So it stands to reason why it worked that way, that there were inherent flaws and inherent gaps, which I had um, that resulted in me not moving as quickly or as equitably along the way. But I mean, I felt completely silenced. I felt completely... Um, unacknowledged. Um, I, even though my family's, even though my family was paying for the tuition and I had to work as well, like setting up bingo (laughs) to pay for my tuition um, and, you know, clean the snow off the sidewalks to pay for my tuition. I was a second class citizen within that, um, you know, within that environment. 
And I honestly don't know if having a Latino teacher, which I had none, I had no Latino teachers, no Latina teachers at all, Mm. all the way through kindergarten, all the way up through middle school. Mm. Um, And even as I got into high school, I only had one Latino teacher. And of course you can imagine, guess what subject he taught? Spanish. Spanish. Oh, Spanish. 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 Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... Not to go too deep into that, but like my whole life has been just around the values of meritocracy, the hidden agenda of citizenship, that if you are silent, if you are um, essentially trying to do your best, not creating any dissent, not going against the grain, then you're going to be rewarded eventually. And that was the narrative that I grew up with. Um, and then I disrupted and had to disrupt as soon as I got into college more so. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I see that a lot when I got to college, I think that was the first time a lot of students were grappling with identity because it was almost like an open and safe space to do so. And I thought to myself, this is a very odd time to be for the first time grappling with it because it it makes me think back to i mean i know ab would appreciate this a lot um coming straight out of the harvard ed school one of my favorite quotes from professor kamer seth who is actually one of our founding board members um i always loved it she always started every class and ended every class with a question that to this day still kind of we don't ask ourselves enough, but what is the point of education? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I could, I could ask a room full of educators as she did and you would have a thousand different answers. Yeah. And where we have, we, we don't have this common understanding because if you look back historically, which I always love to do the idea of like in, you know, V and I, we've talked about this extensively, the idea of, um, of education as we know, it was really a concept predicated back in the early 1900s. Public education hasn't really been public for what, like just the last 120 years, maybe. And it was really just the construct of the rich. I mean, when we talk about like, you know, presidents shitting in buckets and so forth is because, yeah, man, like the overwhelming majority of the country was illiterate because only the rich could afford education. And like that in turn, like sparked an idea of like, well, what's the point of education? It's like, well, dude, if you can't read a legal contract, you're going to get like hoodwinked. If you can't read a draft form, you're going to get drafted to the army and you didn't know it. Uh, because you had no idea what you were signing. It was really a utensil oftentimes for subjugation in that some could read and some could not. But getting back to Kay's question, there's always a quote that I think about that I really do admire that she talks about all the time, which is education is not the filling of a bucket, but it's the lighting of a fire. And it makes me think about identity in education because we have been taught and I can ask all my friends in, in, in high school, like what, what was high school? And they'd probably be like, I don't know, fucking bullshit. Like 
what the fuck? Social experiment. Essentially. I don't, yeah. I don't know what the fuck we were supposed to learn because it was really filling a bucket. <clears throat> it's like, can you do this algorithm? Can you memorize this date? Can you understand this scientific formula? And hopefully some of us maybe learned how to think, but nowhere in the construct of my education from K to 12, was there ever a question or comment about identity? And here's where I want to get into the, into the, knee deep into this conversation. I think the melting pot idea is fucking stupid. I'm just going to come right out and say it. Oh, this is America. Everyone should fucking speak English. First off, fuck you. English is not the official language of the United States. There is no official language of the United States. Second off, this is a country full of immigrants. So like, I don't know where the fuck you get off being like, Hey man, like assimilate, assimilate into what? into a Puritan society that came from 1620 in fucking Boston that ain't the fucking DNA of the Southwest and the Spanish and the Mestizos and the Mexicans. That's a totally different America with a totally different DNA. Um, one that I subscribe to much more so because the idea of sleeping four hours and working <laughs> 18 doesn't sound fucking cool, you know? <laughs> two hours for just going to the restroom in that math. So I have always had a disagreement with this identity ideology of education is to, is to create an informed citizenry. What does informed mean and what kind of citizenry? A citizenry that's going to be lock and step towards this like vague cultural idea that is America, as opposed to what I think like either Europeans, even Africans, and certainly the Canadians got right, which is this like really beautiful patchwork and quilt of identity to saying, we're going to dig deep into our own cultural identity. Because I think that they have this really beautiful ideology, the Canadians at least, is that racism isn't something to be circumvented around. It's something to tackle head on. And we're real fucking pleasant and polite in this country where we don't discuss identity at all in schools or anywhere else. We just kind of like hush it underneath the rug and saying you should, what, enjoy baseball, hot dogs and the American way. And what I'm saying is if you want to alleviate racism, if you want to solve some of these problems, if you want someone to get to where Ian Rowe is talking about, where you have a self-fulfilling identity. Entity, I think you have to go through the very arduous process of understanding cultural identity, where you fit in and not use it as a chip on your shoulder or some kind of like race card to be like, oh, fuck, like it's racism again. I mean, it is sometimes. It ain't all the time, but fuck, man. Like It's like the, the escape room, man. Ain't nobody get out. That's right, ain't man. Structural like, racism ain't nobody get out. You know, and unless, dude, and like, unless you are brown or black, race isn't that big of a deal on your perspective. Like, it's not a big deal politically. It's not a big deal in terms of like where this country should move in because you have never been the recipient of racism. So why the fuck would that be a big deal to you? Because it's not an issue that you grapple with. So I could hear pushback and being like, hey, school is not a place to like have a discussion about identity and there's all kinds of identities. So like, how are you right. gonna, like be favorable? And 
school is a place of inquisitiveness. So you can ask several questions about identity to have kids think about it and go home and do a deeper dive with their family. That would be quite egalitarian, but it's just never fucking discussed. So what you have is these like different postulates of we should do this and we should do that and we should do this without the exploratory component of having students even begin to understand what the hell is identity racially, socially, culturally, religiously? How does that affect your decisions? And can you get to the point where you can celebrate those and start making decisions based on your own desires that may not be predicated upon identity, but are maybe perhaps influenced? And then you have a better understanding of yourself. We're all just fucking lost crying for Morrissey because we've never dealt with our identity and no one's allowed us the opportunity to do so until, like you said, be college. So it's a hell of a debate. So the question is like one of the critical stakes for me, and this is to everyone is that, is it inherently a disservice to simply focus on an educational ecosystem that only narrowly identifies accomplishments and deeds as the highest form of expressive identity without taking into account mm. that those particular scholars who attend that particular school or those schools, yeah. that they I mean, are still influenced and affected and in many cases dealing with the sort of abject oppression of structural racism. Of course. Is it just enough to simply say like, you are an exemplary chess champion. You're an exemplary, you know, um, scholar, you know, in terms of yeah, you're your a ability scientist. to spell words. You're yeah. Historian. Is it just enough to individually possess those characteristics and do those definitions? And that does that agency supersede and allow those scholars to navigate the very difficult challenges associated with structural racism? As soon as they walk out the threshold of their school. Right. Yeah. I say no. Go ahead. Hell no. No, it doesn't. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And like to the to the exact wording that you use, the agency that it gives you, I don't think it gives you agency at all. I think that it gives you I think that it gives you the image or the idea of agency. But all of that, you know, uh, the trophy giving and uh, having people re-identify themselves uh, around accomplishments. I think that that serves to erase your racial ethnic identity and it serves to reinforce the idea of the model minority and the model minority idea. All that does is it allows people the opportunity to say, well, look at these people. They're brown. They're dark. You know, they're they're And many times, most of the time, model minority uh, trope is, um, is centered around Asian Americans. And you know, if they can do it, Right. Think about the Harvard Affirmative Action cases. Right. If they can do it and Asian-Americans have experienced incredible bouts of racism throughout the history of this country as well. If they can do it. How come everybody else can? So I think that doing that on its own and erasing racial ethnic identity and allowing um, our scholars to develop and actually reflect before they get to college that racial ethnic identity, um, the purpose is just to create, I mean, it's the ideology of what's your excuse, right? We have, we got a black spelling bee champion. We got to look at Andrew Benitez. We got a Mexican spelling bee champion. In fact, let's take out the word Mexican. 
we have a spelling bee champion. That's it. Let's yeah. erase that other portion of their identity. Right. Yeah, I mean, V, A, B, come on, man. Like, y'all obviously know where we where we stand on this, where I certainly stand. Like, Whoa. there's a whole character ed component in our in our organization, in our school, that's bent on the, the, the prowess, uh, prowess, the, the, the proposition, right? That if we consistently just award kids for, you know, attendance and academics, that's such a fucking basic bitch way of understanding the holistic needs of a child. And don't get me wrong, man. Like it is awesome to reward academic success. We do so. What I'm saying is that if that's the only thing that's going on, it's not the kid that's basic. It's the organization and the school that's basic because there is significantly more complex ways of teaching a student holistically to where you're trying to have the student understand that there is myriad skill sets out there that matter. I mean, how we predicate our school on crush, right? Collaboration, responsibility, smarts, hungry and humble. And to reward students for those kinds of exemplary behaviors like humility, which is, you know, the idea of like accepting accountability for oneself, um, assessing blame, understanding that like I can be the one who pushes forward a solution. I don't have to, you know, wait for anybody else. And the team is bigger than me and the mission is bigger than me. Those are like precepts of every high functioning fortune 100 company. So if it's, if it's good for them, why isn't it good for our kids? If those principles can holistically teach a student, these are things that matter and you're teaching students. It's not just the academics that matter and it's not the only thing that's going to give you recognition. We want to recognize these really fantastic characteristics that are going to make you highly successful in any society, the ability to collaborate, the ability to creatively problem solve, those things are so necessary for a student to understand that if you're not teaching that, what you are teaching is the bullshit we got in school, which is you're alone and you got to do everything on your own. It is a doggy dog world and you need to compete and you need to beat everybody else. It's just Wall Street. That is how I grew up in education. I grew up in the Gen X Wall Street ideology of beat your competitors, be the best, don't work with the team. It's always the individual over the team. Like they're just going to drag you down. And like where in the DNA of human civilization was that ever a good idea? So to give context to our listeners, I'm going to take that exact same ideology and go out and hunt a woolly mammoth on my own with a rock. That sounds like a good ass idea. Or how about I go out and farm by myself for 12 hours a day without any help, without the help of animals, without teamwork. That also sounds like a really good idea. It, it, it's such stupidity for me to even think that spelling be champion or academic champion or scientist is the only thing that students need to understand are beneficial for their success and for their identity because things that are tied not just to the character trait, but if you link that 
with Latino heritage, it's a fucking totally different thing for a kid to be like, well, who the hell is Galileo as opposed to, oh, the Mayans had the most accurate calendar and those are my ancestors. Why? For me, it's radically different. Yeah. I want to, I want to jump in and, and, um, this is a perfect time to to jump into Dr. Love's text. And I want to point out, um, Dr. Love actually was a guest on the eight black hands, uh, podcast before. So, um, just like, uh, what's the word serendipity, uh, serendipity. They're, they're with her brothers over eight black hands and we are studying her work, um, here at the Harvard graduate school of ed. Um, but with a lot of these issues, I mean, it's sticky, it's messy. And, uh, I want to read a couple of excerpts that I think, uh, touch to, uh, Dr. Love's ideology of character ed and what it means for uh, low-income and minority students. Um, so from her text, um, critical thinking, problem solving, social and emotional intelligence, zest, self-advocacy, grit, optimism, self-control, curiosity, and gratitude are the characteristics school officials, politicians, policymakers, educational consulting firms, curriculum writers, ed researchers and corporate school reformers repackage and sell to educators and parents of dark children. For most schools in the U.S., especially schools with a large majority of low-income and dark students, their mission statements, weekly blogs, and fundraising materials are plastered with these racially coded, feel good, work hard, and take responsibility for my actions buzzwords that make up character education. At face value, character ed seems harmless, and I'm sure we can all agree that children need good qualities to be successful in life, regardless of how you define success. But character education is anti-Black, and it has replaced civics education in our schools. Students no longer learn how to be informed and active citizens, which is key to democracy. Instead, they learn how to comply and recite affirmations about grit. Damn. So in reading that quote, AB, what is it that like you're trying to make a point of? And I think V wants to say something really quick about that too. No points for me. Um, any reactions? I mean, I think that it takes the task um, the hidden curriculum in both of these statements. So when you have Ian Rowe on one side talking about the personal accomplishments that scholars can make that are directly linked to their agency, then when you talk about the capacity for young people to become more successful by living in and working within a um, anti-racist community, but once again, just making sure that the curriculum is overhauled and that we are identifying those opportunities to acknowledge and really incorporate those historical personages, events, and themes doesn't necessarily mean that you are militating against the structural racism that exists within society. So I think for me, what it exposes, the quote that you just read by Dr. Love, um, is just this sort of hidden agenda or the hidden curriculum around citizenship. And one side, I think, of course, I don't think Ian Rowan is saying this explicitly, but I think one of the one of the ideas that you can infer from it is that to the level and extent in which young people are given the proper opportunities and foundations to be successful, 
Um, but not everybody can. Not everyone's going to be a chess champion. Not everyone's going to be a science fair champion. Not all are going to accomplish that. That is directly linked to their sense of freedom and mobility. Um, but I do think that, once again, it dismisses the way in which that particular mindset is still furtively aligned to the dominant discourse and practices of how one has to exonerate their cultural identity in order to be successful right. and assume what the dominant culture processes as the proper cultural capital and value within society. Don't see me as a Chicano male, see me as a chess champion or see me as a scholar athlete. That is impossible to extirpate your subject position and your identity, right? I could walk out on the streets right now, walking down the streets, ain't nobody gonna see me as a principal with 26 years of experience, as a professional who has multiple degrees in education. The fact is, is my subject position is not gonna exist in that way. Nobody's gonna see me as my accomplishments. They are going to see me as a large brown Chicano male walking the streets. And in some cases will provoke fear because all of that discursive identity already pre-exists to put me in my place. So we can talk about this radical individualism because that's part of the American trope of identity. This radical individualism that can somehow supersede all of the different barriers and identities that have been cast upon us. But ultimately, I think it's really an injustice and disservice to our young people, especially our brown and black youth, to simply say that you are the culmination of the present time period and everything that you accomplish within it. It does nothing to acknowledge and to really understand the heritage um, in which our young people come from and how that is broadcasting the changes necessary for the next seven generations, because we are in a power struggle. Unbelievably Absolutely. so, and undeniably so. And just to give our scholars the education and opportunities that are necessary for them to individually combat those challenges is insufficient, it's unjust, and it's inequitable, straight up. That's my opinion. Damn. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, agree and, and put a little bit of, um, a little bit of a, a, a wrench in what I'm understanding about what I just heard. And, uh, this quote here, it, it's easy for me personally to look at this quote and talk about character education and how it's being anti-black, um, or anti-Latino because the way that we decide to do character education at our organization is radically different with a radically different paradigm than I think how other people view character education. We're looking at it as it is, is not just an empowerment, but it's really about the development through experiential learning and these like really funny, quirky um, kind of activities where students are really being like, damn, I really learned to listen and I really learned to empathize and I've really learned to work in a team. So let me take the teamwork as, as, a, as an example, for example, uh, as an example, for example, who the fuck is learning teamwork in high school? Who the fuck is learning teamwork in college? 
I went to the Harvard Kennedy School. No one taught me about teamwork there. In fact, I had like a really bad experience with a team because we were all just kind of stuck together doing this project. And it made me realize for the first time, oh my God, like team dynamics are very difficult. And unless you have someone who's really organized about how to manage a well-functioning team, how to create different levels of accountability and responsibilities and timelines and deadlines, like that's a skill set that I think is really critically cool. Um, Hunger. I want to get into that one because that's my favorite example. When we talk about hunger at in our organization, it's really about helping students be in a safe space to fail and then understand that it's okay for them to fail and keep going. These are all things that we've spent a lot of time deliberating and developing. So our form of character education, in my opinion, is very holistic. And there's a ton of studies that demonstrate that that level of holistic education actually is quite good for anyone because it's not necessarily racially based. It's really based in an asset minded ideology that like that character education I would teach to our low income Latino kids. And if I just happen to have a school on the west side of El Paso with affluent white kids, I would do the exact same stuff. I wouldn't change it at all. What I'm saying is that there these really like awesome skill sets, these like soft skills are kick ass and they should be taught, but that's the way we do it. I worry a whole lot about people that are looking at Latino kids and black kids with a deficit minded ideology. Let me let me jump in right there. You yeah. observe like me completely um, in thinking about, but there's a lot. I mean, like I said, I just I just pulled out a couple of quotes, but there's a lot to Dr. Love's text. Um, and elsewhere in the text, she talks about these like prepackaged um, corporate character ed programs that really rose to prominence in the 80s and 90s, character counts, heart work program. Um, and she says. Those are all compliance-based, man. Here we go. Yeah. They're all compliance-based programs. programs. These programs with no formal evaluation of their success rates were bought by public schools everywhere on the belief that their growing student bodies of dark and poor students lacked good character. Jesus. So everything, oh, why, everything you just said about the deficit mindset and how it's, it's about, we talk about character ed, it's how are you doing it? Is it your population and your people lack character and I will give it to you? Or is it, I see you, I see your people, I see the struggles you go through every day and I see the character that you already have. I'm gonna point it out to you. I'm gonna empower you to keep doing that. When we read this, I had, and this will resonate with y'all, one of my classmates, he says, you know, it's just infuriating the idea of we lack character. And he says, you know, if you knew, if my teachers knew what I had to do to get to school every day, the two miles I walked past gang territory and violence and drug dealing just to get myself to school, how dare you tell me I don't have grit? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what V said is right. It's like this prepackaged bullshit material that is not in any way, shape or form asset minded or tailored towards the needs of, I would even say kids. And that gets, I don't want to get off on the rant here about that, but 
all yeah. these motherfuckers who literally make this prepackaged bullshit that they think is awesome. No, it's not. It's most of it is dog shit. You're doing it merely to garner a profit and then to boot it's reinforced by people that are using it to say, you don't have this, so we need to give it to you. When you're making the presupposition that you have those skill sets to begin with, like all these people that go on about grit, I'm like, do do you have it? Do you think you've got it better than that kid who's literally walking through gang territory for every day, all day, or the fact that they have to deal with like, the myriad issues at home. I mean, I always talk about it, like alcoholic mom, alcoholic dad, single mom, no electricity, raising their cousins, still trying to do homework. I think that those folks have more grit in a day than the person who wrote that fucking book has ever had in their entire life. Yet you make the assumption that this is what we need because what, like, you decided to do a little bit of research with your two years and two at TFA and decide that you knew everything that you needed to know about urban education after that. So you decided to write a book to a bunch of other people who don't know dick about education and like get them on some bullshit bandwagon. I have these conversations all the time. Like, Hey man, how are you teaching your kids grit? And I'm like, how the fuck are you teaching grit to yourself? Fuck dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you don't have grit. why the fuck are you telling me about great or like thank you for reading that atlantic article but i mean i I get off on a rant here i think what you're trying to say is that i do have an inherent issue with thinking that they need to have like like v very well said like you gotta meet these mandates it's not about empowerment or critical thought or skill development and getting kids to focus in on learning real skills as opposed to regurgitating shit on the test. It's like, oh, you got to prove to me you got grit, kid. How the, f- the fuck are you supposed to prove that? Yeah. I mean, this is relevant. Like, we just had uh, parent student conferences, and this comment that my sixth grade teacher said to my parents. Um, at parent student conference uh, comes to mind. And I was always a very quiet, super quiet student, very respectful. Like I followed the rules like crazy, did my work, blah, blah, blah. And the teacher said something to my parents to the effect of, you know, Andrew's amazing to have in class. He's a joy. I mean, I wish I could just have 30 Andrews. And at the time I felt like amazing by that, like, oh man, you know, like my teacher is somebody who I respect, a person in a place of authority says that she wants a whole class full of me. And I thought later on, really dig into what she was saying and the behaviors that I was exhibiting, I, I was complying. I was a good boy. And she wished that right. she had 30 of me's. And you know what? Me as a teacher and me as an educator, I do not want to create another generation of me's in that sense. I want to create a generation of people who are, you can be quiet, you can be respectful, but you can also know when it's time to question authority and to say that this is not right. And I wish that I had that when I was younger and there were times when just fucked up things happened and, and I was, I was a good boy. I was a compliant student. And so these are the types of things that if you look at, you know, what undergirds a character ed um, curriculum, is it to question authority and to have agency and to have empowerment or is it to 
sit down, be quiet, work hard, be nice. Don't rock the boat. Right. (laughs) I appreciate some of your word choices, my man. (laughs) 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 I'm going to leave that at that. Uh, Because if you don't know, you should look it up and now you know. Um, Let me say this. I think we've got to wrap up this episode and it leaves us, A.B., you put us in a really good position to transition to, I think, our next episode where we explore the idea of character ed significantly deeper. You have some really fantastic questions that you proposed that we did not have a chance to get to in this episode that I think we should tackle in next episode because I think we set the foundation of this up uh, extraordinarily well. Does that sound good to y'all? Yeah, Yeah. sounds good. Absolutely. Yeah. So what I want to do is just go ahead and wrap this up and um, VAB kind of give your final thoughts, uh, maybe give a little bit of thought into what we're going to talk about in the next episode and get us uh, served up and set up and then we can uh, give the despedidas. Yeah. Um, I actually want to read a quote um, because I think it'll help us next time sort of frame the discussion, but also bring into um, light the underpinnings of the cultural underpinnings and critical stakes of this conversation. So um, it's by James Baldwin, um, delivered back in 1963, a talk to teachers. And he said, the purpose of education finally is to create in a person the ability to look at the world for himself, to make his own decisions, to say to himself, this is black or this is white, to decide for himself whether there is a God in heaven or not, to ask questions of the universe and then learn to live with those questions is the way he achieves his own identity. But no society is really anxious to have that kind of person around. What societies really, ideally, want is a citizenry which will simply obey the rules of society. If a society succeeds in this, that society is about to perish. The obligation of anyone who thinks of himself as responsible is to examine society and to try to change it and fight it at no matter what the risk. This is the only hope society has. This is the only way societies change. And so I think that this quote by Baldwin, for me, brings into focus that sometimes we are lured into these conversations. Is this a culturally responsive environment? Is this an environment that sets up our scholars for individual success? What I'm saying is, once again, like using Baldwin as a way to sort of as a foil for these like opposing viewpoints is that we need to start asking better questions instead of just these litmus questions of like, is it anti-racist? Is it culturally responsive? Is it focusing on character? We need to stop asking all of those questions because all of those questions are symptomatic of us staying in one place. In one way, from a conservative perspective, we stay in our place and we acquiesce to the silence and our subject position that has been given to us. On the other side, then it's possible for us to create so much disruption that we can't really achieve anything individually or collectively. And so my thing is like for the next time that we come together is to really put that question back on the table, the quote that you gave, and then also Baldwin provoking us to ask ourselves fundamentally, what is the type of education that our brown and black children need now more than ever in this state of crisis, in this state of oppression, and what I call like just de facto segregation again in terms of the issues that we're dealing with. 
100%. Thank you, V. That's and what's thank up. You for, yeah. Thank you for sharing the quote. Um, I'll, I'll be brief. And I think that, you know, I'm not sure of the variety of our listenership, but I, I hope that um, that some or many of those listening are, are classroom teachers themselves. Um, or I hope that some, you know, work in, in some level of education. And so, you know, the, the question that I, I asked folks to think about and for us to think about as well is, you know, every day with the decisions that we make, if we have influence over the lives of, of children, are the decisions that we make um, emboldening them to stand up uh, and empower themselves and their community? Or are the decisions that we are making stripping them of that power, oppressing them and telling them to sit down, be quiet and be compliant? An open question that I, I think about in the decisions that I make, and you know, I think it's relevant for policymakers, it's relevant for um, systems level leaders, program leaders, and especially for our, our classroom um, instructors. So um, it's what I'll leave you all with and, and look forward to discussing again next week. Right on, man. This is a, a really brilliant and heady conversation. I, I with you, V. I think that there there is this ideology about complicitness that AB was talking about, that you were talking about, about acquiescing. What are we doing to get our students to think critically about the very structures that they are themselves within? I mean, that's some... That's some shit. That's something that I, I've always been very adamant about in my classroom, in our schools, in our conversations, is that we want to be able to teach students to really think about the constructs that are definitively around them and have them think, is this, is this the best way? This- I would argue that we haven't even done that work as adults yet. We want to provoke that thought in our young people. We as adults have not even interrogated the biases and the dominant thinking that we still possess. I couldn't agree more. I mean, because when, when was that ever posed to us and doesn't need to be posed to us? I say, fuck. Yeah, it does. You're absolutely right. The adults just simply say, well, like this is the way it is. And, I've, you know, me, man, I've always hated that. Like if someone tells me this is the way we've always done it, I'm like, why the fuck are we done it this way then? There's like 17 different ways to do this. You know, that's just like the ENTP, Tony Stark and me just being like, I, I got 18 different ways that this can be done all better than the way we're currently doing it right now. So, but there, therein lies where I think I want to leave my final comment, V. You hit it right on the, on the nose. We are debating about a structural way of having students think about their identity, about life, about their own characteristics, about skill sets they're going to need and are are they getting it from adults who have really thought about this long and hard and deliberated it and can create something that will make the kids think and decide on their own, much like your quote, right? Or have these adults done exactly what you just said, V, and never thought about it, never dealt with it on their own, have run away from it completely, and then think that some silver bullet 
bullshit ass prescribed formula that they got from some company that's promising them the world and, you know, twinkles and the stars of the results that are going to happen. Are they implementing something that they have not gone through themselves, never thought about themselves, nor have any idea about. It's the hypocrisy of saying our kids should have grit when you have none. It's the hypocrisy of we need to teach kids to have grit when there was no lesson for you to understand what grit was. It's the hypocrisy of our kids need grit instead of understanding What do our kids actually have? How do we take a massive inventory of that skill set and how do we build upon it? Because instead of simply designating programs and answers, we're finally asking the right questions, which is just exactly what V said, literally verbatim, brother. So, On that note, we're going to leave it there and we're going to definitely jump into this on a very deep level for our next episode. I can't be more excited. That's going to come out next week. So as always, thank you so much to our listeners. This podcast obviously depends on you. We do this for you all. So if you want to chime in, give us a topic, want to talk about things, hell, even be a guest, you got to hit us up. We want to hear from you. You can hit us up on Twitter at EPW podcast on the gram as the kids would call it these days, the underscore EPW podcast. And of course, EPW podcast at gmail.com. You can hear us on Spotify, Anchor FM, Apple, Google podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. So from all of us, Carnales in Denver, Cambridge, and El Paso, we want to say goodbye to you all. Final farewells, y'all. Stay up, mi gente. Much love, much respect. Keep teaching and leading strong. Much love to you all. Much love to the listeners. Um, Stay warm if you're in Denver. Uh, Stay cool (laughs) if you're in El Paso. (laughs) I'm very jealous. And rock those Uggs if you're in uh, Cambridge. Rock those Uggs. Living that Ugg life. (laughs) For all of our listeners, man, stay true. Ask yourself these questions. Chime in. Let us hear you on these platforms. And help us start asking these questions in our communities in a much deeper way so that these conversations go well past this podcast and into our dining rooms, living rooms, dinners, lunches, coffees, water breaks, and whatnot. From all of us here at the Estas and El Puro Wyoming podcast, as always, muchísimas gracias, buenas noches, y buena suerte.